Okay, you guys. Well, if you want to get those Bibles out, we were just kind of looking around here. We haven't brought our Bibles over from the church. If you're looking for one to read along with, that's our bad. And uh, maybe you could look around. If there's someone next to you that doesn't have a Bible, you could pass yours on to them. You can also download a Bible app from uh, the App Store and have that on your phone. But uh, get in those Bibles, get to Romans And we're in the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans, known as the Fort Knox of Bible doctrine. Uh, The Fort Knox of Bible doctrine and just connecting to my Wi-Fi here. And so I was just thinking of that as we were driving down, just how much deep doctrine is in the book of Romans, and also thinking about, oh man, and this is a family service, and so uh, just thinking about the kids that are listening, and my son Titus and I were just praying on our way down, uh, Lord, just help, help me to know how to balance this between the, uh, the children and the adults, and it might be easier for you than you think, because... Uh, all of a sudden, all my notes disappeared. So, if you remember, my uncle Rick was here. He was having trouble with his. Uh, so it runs in the family. But I got it figured out. So we got it taken care of. And so I just want you to know, being sensitive to the children that are here, and it just may be something that kids just kind of check out and tune out for a little bit. And uh, that's okay. I know how that is. And uh, been there myself a time or two. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, probably looking through verse 22 today, uh, titling kind of this week and next that we are without excuse, without reverence, and without gratitude. And found online some excuse notes written from parents And sometimes children themselves trying to excuse themselves from certain activities, especially school. Let me just read you a couple of these. My son is under a doctor's care and should not take P.E. today. Please execute him. Please excuse Pam for being absent from school. Everything's spelled wrong. She was sick and I had her shot. Dear school, please excuse Cecil being absent on June 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, 32nd, and also 33rd. (laughs) Apparently they have uh, school on in June 30th. Uh, Please excuse Marvin from physical education lessons for a few days. Yesterday he fell out of a tree and misplaced his hip. (laughs) John has been absent because he had two teeth taken out of his face. Ray was absent yesterday because he was playing football and was hurt in the growing part. (laughs) As we read Romans today, we see that when man stands before the judgment seat of God, they will be without excuse. No notes from mom or from the doctor will be accepted. When excuses will be made, 
Verse 19 of chapter 3 tells us, Every mouth will be stopped and all the world will be found guilty before God. In verses 18 through 25, we see men are without excuse and they're without gratitude. They're without reverence. And especially that reverence aspect of it is woven throughout. It's been said nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need of him or their unwillingness to admit it. And John Stott says, but if sin and guilt are universal as they are, we cannot leave people alone in such a false paradise of supposed innocence. The most irresponsible action of a doctor would be to go along with the patient's inaccurate self-diagnosis. Our Christian duty is, rather, through prayer and teaching, to bring people to accept the true diagnosis of their condition in the sight of God. Otherwise, they will never respond to the good news of the gospel. And so... In the first few chapters of Roman, Paul's going to demonstrate the universality of human sin and guilt. And the way he does that is to divide the human race into several sections and accuse them one by one. And in each section, the case is identical. He's going to begin by reminding the group of their knowledge of God and his goodness He then confronts them with the uncomfortable fact that they've not lived up to that knowledge. Instead, they've deliberately suppressed it, even contradicted it by living in unrighteousness. And so they're guilty. They're inexcusably guilty before God. Nobody can plead innocence because nobody can plead ignorance. And so the first group that he's going to speak to, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, so this is going to be over the next couple weeks, he's going to portray the depraved Gentiles. That's non-Jewish people, which is probably about 99% of us here on this hill today. Uh, And so really, we may resonate with uh, this first chapter or two. So the depraved Gentile society... We see our idolatry, our immorality, and our antisocial behavior. And then, secondly, the group of, uh, it's chapter chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, critical moralizers. Now, many of us also fit into this category. Critical moralizers. Whether Gentiles or Jews, they profess high ethical standards, but apply them to everybody except themselves, right? All right. The third group of people, he turns to self-confident Jews who boast in their knowledge of God's law, but they don't obey it. And then the fourth group, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, the whole human race, and concluding, it concludes that we are all without excuse before God. So Paul begins this big exposition of the gospel by establishing the culpability of all humanity. 
Jews, Gentiles, it doesn't matter. It's a big legal book that we're reading. So I encourage you guys, man, when I was in high school, uh, I just started walking with Jesus, loving Jesus, and I just began doing something that is so not Rory, and that is packing a book around with me and a notebook around with me. The book was the Bible, and the notebook was all my notes from Bible study with a pen. So I just encourage you guys, Book of Romans, you're going to want a, a notebook and pen. And totally works if that notebook is built into your phone. That's what I use nowadays, and I just have tons of notes typed into my phone, okay? I want to encourage you, be taking notes. It will help you remember these things and press them down deep, okay? So the culpability of all humanity is mentioned here. So let's get into it. Now, it goes without saying that verse 18 where we're beginning today is tied directly to verses 16 and 17. It's kind of a no doy sort of a thing, right? But if you remember 16 and 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why are you not ashamed of the gospel, Paul? Someone might ask. And he would say in verse 17, well, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus and the story of what he's done and that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But while we were sinners, he pursued us. He laid his life down for us. He sacrificed his sinless self. For, all, for our sinful selves, and in his sacrifice, anyone who believes in what he's done for them will be saved and be made right before God, have the hope of heaven, and have relationship with Jesus restored. So why are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God to save us. And in that story, in the truth of what he's done, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so this directly goes into verse 18, where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the first step in Paul's demonstrating that all humanity is sinful and exposed to the wrath of God is because of, of sin, is the assertion that men and people are liable to judgment because of their idolatry. Uh, Paul starts out here by beginning to engage a hypothetical Jewish opponent. Imagine Paul's talking to a really self-righteous person, and he's going to get into just talking about the not-righteous people. He's going to do a whole list of just gross sins. He's just going to list them all. And so that self-righteous person, when they hear it, they're going to be like, yeah, keep preaching it. They are a bunch of lousy sickos. Yeah, ew, 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 and all of that. And then by the time we get to the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, Paul's going to pull the rug out from under them and say, and you're just like them. You're just like him. He's essentially setting a trap for his opponents. 
And that's going to help him take that next step of demonstrating that that next group of people is also unrighteous. Now, if it's your first time to Calvary Chapel or you're just starting to go back to church and come to church, I know what you're thinking in the first verse we read. Romans 1.18, the first thing you hear is, for the wrath of God. I mean, I know you're, you're just like, I knew it. I knew that's what we were going to hear about today. I knew it. That's just what all the churches are about. The wrath of God, hellfire and brimstone. Oh yeah, you guys tricked me in here with your cute little park service and your canopies on a hill and the cute music and the flower barrels up front. And I knew it was coming and you didn't even wait 10 minutes and you said the word wrath. All right, all right. I get it. It's not a very popular word today, but just bear with me through this great legal document to understand why we would even say such a harsh and severe word. I mean, would there ever be an instant in humanity and in justice and in legal proceedings where wrath might be something that would actually be appropriate? Wrath speaks of Anger, yes, and punishment for sure. One preacher called God's wrath his holy displeasure and righteous vengeance against sin. And John Stott, this great Scottish preacher I love to read, had a whole section in his chapter just about the wrath of God. And let me just fill you in on the conclusion of what he wrote. He says, wrath must be God reacting in revulsion against sin. It is his, quote, deeply personal abhorrence of evil. The wrath of God then is almost totally different than human anger. It does not mean that God loses his temper flies into a rage, or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive, the alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality. Let me say that again. The opposite of wrath is not love, but neutrality in the moral conflict. And God is not neutral. On the contrary, his wrath is holy hostility to evil. His refusal to condone it or to come to terms with it. It's his just judgment upon it. Now, is there anybody here who loves evil and would just say, I love the evil? Evil can evil. I mean, that guy was awesome, right? No, everyone would say, yeah, oh, evil. Man, we want judgment against evil. And we want anger against evil. And that is what God's wrath is. And we see in this verse where this wrath comes from. It's revealed from heaven. It's come down and it showed itself from heaven. So it's from heaven, and we see who it's directed towards. It's against, number one, 
ungodliness. Ungodliness. May take you back to a, a word used in something like Downton Abbey or something. You know, someone in a tuxedo with an accent and a mouth full of marbles, you know. And they, they, oh, it's ungodly is what it is, you know. Ungod I've never talked like that. I have watched Downton Abbey, though. Not bad, not bad, okay. Uh, but ungodly, and what it speaks of is impiety, okay, impropriety, but especially towards God. That you have no religious fear of God. You don't care about God, who he is, his attributes, his characteristics. And so God's wrath goes towards ungodliness and impiety. It also goes towards the unrighteousness of men. The unrighteousness of men. And if you're someone who is, you know, you're a part of the culture war of this day and you see that there is great value for justice and equity and equality, then you should love Romans chapter one, because it tells us that the wrath of God is against inequity and inequality and injustice or any type of unjust deed God our holy God is against injustice and his wrath burns hot against it so in general the wrath of God is directed against evil alone and we get angry when our pride is wounded but there is no personal pick in the anger of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 says that with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So anyone who doesn't receive the truth that saves them and receives deception in its place takes part of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The terms godlessness and wickedness denote on the one hand a lack of reverence for the deity, that's godlessness, and on the other hand, a violation of human rights, that's wickedness. In fact, you could break those, the Ten Commandments kind of fall into those camps. It's been said that the first four Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God and laws that we ought not break in our relationship with God. And the following six commandments deal with our relationship toward men. I'll, let, I'll leave you to remembering the Ten Commandments and which fall into that camp. But the wrath of God burns hot from heaven against those that sin against God and their impiety and sin against mad in their unrighteousness and injustice. And we see here that those people, at the end of verse 18, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. And there's a few different uh, dictionary words or synonyms that help with this. In our suppression, we restrain the truth. 
We hold down the truth, hold it back, and prevent it. You might imagine that every time we come to church or have a preacher speak biblical truth to us, we can either believe it and receive it, as the old saying says, hey, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Or to make it maybe a little more true, the Bible says it, that settles it. Whether or not I believe it, it still is right. Okay? The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. But maybe even you here today, though, you hear these things and, oh, your flesh bristles. You start gritting your teeth. I can hear it from here. Like you're going to want to pick those pieces of your teeth back up and put them in your pocket, take them home with you. Okay? But as, as the Bible is going forth today, you're suppressing the truth. You're pushing it down. You're restraining it from hitting home. You won't have it. And the more you allow that to happen, the more ungodly you become, the more wicked and unrighteous you become. And John Stott says, it's not just that they do wrong, though they know better. It's that they've been making a deliberate decision to live for themselves rather than for God and others. And therefore, they deliberately stifle any truth which challenges their self-centeredness. This is just a good place for you to sit still and just think for a minute and meditate. Maybe just maybe you're not really a believer as you come here, but maybe you would just muster up a little prayer to God and say, God, is that me? Have I been stifling truth so that I can live how I want to live? Have you been trying to speak to me and, and I just won't have it? And so I've been suppressing the truth. <coughs> Baker comments aptly saying the two possibilities are complementary, not contradictory. If the unsaved possesses the truth in an unrighteous state, then they're actually suppressing it. You might have the truth, but you're continuing to walk in a continually. Yes, write that down in your notes. Continuing to walk in unrighteousness, then you are suppressing the truth. Two men had an argument. To settle the matter, they went to a judge for arbitration. The plaintiff made his case. He was very eloquent and persuasive in his reasoning. And when he finished, the judge nodded in approval and said, that's right. That's right. Well, on hearing this, the defendant jumped up and said, wait a second, judge. You haven't even heard my side of the case yet. So the judge told the defendant to state his case. And he too was very persuasive and eloquent. When he finished, the judge said, that's right. That's right. And when the clerk of the court heard this, he jumped up and said, Judge, they can't both be right. And the judge looked at the clerk of the court and said, That's right. That's right. There is a righteous judge, my friends, who knows what is true 
and what is right. And he will make clear, righteous judgments in the case. The clear implication of our text is that the two heavenly revelations are happening concurrently. Divine revelation, natural revelation. We'll see that in the next couple verses. But with it comes divine wrath. The J.B. Phillips translation of this verse, J.B. Phillips, he lived back during World War II, had a heart for the youth of England. He was a Greek Bible scholar. So he wrote a translation so that the youth of England could read the Bible and love it. and It would be palatable for them. I love the J.B. Phillips translation. Here's what here's how he translated verse 18. The holy anger of God is disclosed from heaven against the godlessness and evil of those men who render truth dumb and inoperative by their wickedness. We see this in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31, Paul preaching in Athens, Greece. He says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he's given assurance to this by raising him from the dead. And so maybe up to this point, you've been walking in ignorance. That doesn't excuse you, but God's being merciful and gracious to you today by bringing you to this place so you can have truth brought to light in your sight. And to know that one day you will stand before the judge for your sins. His wrath against you. And today is a day of mercy and grace where you can have all your sins forgiven. And the wrath of God that would have been towards you has been placed upon his son Jesus Christ at the cross. That's what a sacrifice is. That's what a substitute is. And that's what Jesus has done for you. We see in this text that there's inflexible resistance of God to evil. And he has determination to make it made right in every shape or form. Man's condition as subject Slave, an instrument of sin is one that can only end in calamity for himself. Colin Cruz wrote, The natural man is traveling as fast as his two feet will carry him to perdition. Paul uses the present tense of the verb wrath manifest. He says that the wrath is actually made manifest right now. 2,000 years ago when he wrote it, 2,000 years later, now in Prineville, the present tense is used. It's led some interpreters to say that Paul envisages God's wrath being poured out currently. The wrath can be interpreted in terms of God handing people over to the natural outworking of their sinful behavior in this present time. Douglas Moo, it's been said he wrote, the book on Romans, Douglas Moo said, the history of the world is the judgment of the world. That 
Wrath has been being poured out on the earth since the beginning when man said, no, God, I don't want you. I want to live how I want to live. And part of God's wrath is him saying, okay, I'm going to deliver you over to what you want. And it is going to be absolutely destructive for you and for the world and the planet and all of humanity. And that that is just an aspect and a part of the wrath of God. Byrne says, the sense of divine wrath is bound up with the biblical conception of a personal God whose dealings with humankind are intended by an intense moral will. The wrath, wrath of God blazes out when that will and specifically the love that lies behind it, thwarted by human pride, Rebellion, obstinacy, and disloyalty. It's being revealed from heaven now, Paul says. And he goes on to explain it by his terrible threefold refrain that God gives them through the rest of the chapter. When we hear of God's wrath, we usually think of thunderbolts from heaven and earthly cataclysms and flaming majesty. Instead of which, God's anger sometimes goes quietly and invisibly to work in handing sinners over to themselves. And maybe you'd be honest about your life. And you just see some of the, the, just the effects of sin in your life where you say, man, I've really actually gotten what I wanted. And it hasn't been a good thing. And it has left a wake of destruction on my body, on my mind, on my soul, on my spirit, on my conscience, on my family and those closest to me. Look what it's done to my community. Look what it's doing to my nation, my world, my planet, all of these things. All because I've gotten what I've wanted. And that might just show you today your fallen condition and your need for a savior. John Zeisler writes, God's wrath operates not by God's intervention, but precisely by his not intervening, letting men and women go their own way. And we're going to see that through the rest of the chapter one of Romans. It's going to be a couple of weeks out. And we're going to see that this wrath of God is revealed from heaven against sinful men and evil And we're just going to see how it's revealed by him letting them go their own way. If you know Romans 1, you know Romans 1, right? You know this list of just deplorable behavior that happens when people are left going their own way. God abandons stubborn sinners to their willful self-centeredness. And the resulting process of moral and spiritual degeneration is to be understood as a judicial act of God. That's a revelation of God's wrath from heaven. Verse 19 tells us, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Why is the wrath of God Why is the wrath of God from heaven being revealed against ungodly and unrighteous men? Why? 
you can almost write this out as a conversation. One guy did it in one of my books. He's like, why Paul? And then Paul gives an answer. How do you say, how so Paul? And Paul gives an answer. It's kind of like he's answering rhetorical questions here. Why is the wrath of God being poured out from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Why? Well, verse 19 has the because statement. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. God's made him all about him visible and evident and known. He's revealed himself. The reason it's plain is that God has taken the initiative to make it plain to us who he is. Back in the book of Acts, Paul's preaching a sermon to a bunch of pagan heathens. He says, the living God who made heaven and earth and the seas and the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he didn't leave himself without a witness in that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So do you see Paul preaching there? I think it's in Lystra that he says all of that. All since bygone generations, God has manifest himself. He has been a witness to himself by doing good to us. Look around, guys. Just right now, do you see God's common grace to you? Man, we live in a beautiful city, a beautiful town. What a beautiful day. Have you noticed the moisture we've gotten this year? Man, the last couple of years, a little bit tough, but man, the Lord just quenching our parched, dry mouth. Driving by Ochico Reservoir yesterday, I've never seen it. I lived here 14 years. I don't know if I've ever seen uh, it was Ochico Reservoir filled up to the brim like that. People sitting on the docks with fishing nets, like never seen that. Maybe, maybe once, I don't know. And it's just like, oh God, man, all the farmers in the area just, oh, thank you. God, they don't even know what they're saying when they say, thank God for the moisture. It's because God has been good. Gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. Have you guys seen the hay laying down in the fields as you've been driving around? Man, those swathers are like, just doing what they can to push that hay through the condition. They're like, oh, you're going to wear those swathers out, you guys. Be careful. Grease them up good, Adam. Watch for a little deep. Okay, anyways. God has been good. Acts 17, 25, just to back up the point that God has not left himself without witness. He's not worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives life and breath and to all things, he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he's determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries and their dwellings. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own pagan poets have said, we are his offspring. And Paul just says there in Athens as he's preaching that God has just been showing that he is God throughout history. It's been said that history is his story that if you might just grope for God, you'll find him. He's not far from you. Look at verse 20. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are, and here's this word, kind of part one of this series, without excuse. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Just open up your eyes and you see his characteristics. Job wrote in Job 12, 7, Ask the beasts and they will teach you, and the birds of the air and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Why does the wrath of God burn from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Because what may be known of God has been shown to them since the beginning of creation. All mankind just need to open up their eyes and they know that there is a creator of all of these things. His attributes, his characteristics, his power and majesty is is to be seen. And so as you come into this place and you hear about the wrath of God, many wonderful and merciful people just have a grief in their heart. This can't be true, the wrath of God. What about all the people that live in the deserts and the jungles and the mountains who've never heard about Jesus? There's a great book called Eternity in Their Hearts. And it shows us some of this revelation of God to man That since the beginning, people have understood who made them, what his attributes are, and that they are without excuse. And if you're concerned that they haven't heard about Jesus yet, you're on the right track because it's our job to go tell them. That's why we have such a burden on our heart for world missions, because we know that about a quarter of the world's population has had zero missionary output toward them in the last 2,000 years. And another quarter of the world's just been barely reached. That's on us. Because the Lord has said, go unto all the world and tell them. What has your role been in that, friends? And as we have gone to Nepal, we've heard many stories of people we know who were Buddhists and Hindus and sons of lamas and being raised up to be the next spiritual leaders of Buddhism in in Tibetan Buddhism. And God has not left himself without witness to those and that he has given them dreams and visions and trances and, and all kinds of visions in their head and words spoken to them by men in white who've appeared to them that have said, people are coming to you to tell you how to know your creator and how to be forgiven of your sins. That's how merciful God is. And we'll meet these people. And friends of mine have been met by these people on the road who said, I knew you were coming. A man in white appeared to me last night and told me that you would be coming to tell me how to know my creator and how to be forgiven of my sin. Since the beginning of the world, 
the people living high up in the Himalayas, in the jungles of Laos and Vietnam and Cambodia, the deserts of Iran and Iraq, they have not been left without witness of who this God is. God has created us with reason and logic, and every culture has a sense of morals, a sense of right and wrong. The Bible tells us this. Not only is there the inward witness of just what our conscience alone says, that we have sinned, but creation has that outward witness. It speaks to man that God exists, even his eternal power in Godhead. Maybe you have the ESV translation today. It says, namely, his eternal power and divine nature. It's deity. Psalm 19, 1 through 4, almost every commentary I read went to Psalm, 1, or Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. I just encourage you, as we come to the park service, probably one negative that I've heard about outdoor services, and whether it's been, you know, in Klamath Falls or Corvallis or here, whatever, is sometimes people say it's so distracting sometimes, you know, and I'm like, right on, be distracted by the glory of God in this place. I get it, kids running around, I'm getting sunburned, i got to kind of move into the shade, you know, all these sort of different things, I, I get all of that. But also, as we're out here worshiping, look at this thing, see this thing flying, it's just fluttering by. <laughs> Be distracted by that. When else do you get a butterfly coming through, you know, at church? And what do we do with that? I can't believe we're outside and a butterfly is right in front of me. Like, how about, can you believe our creator created this beautiful butterfly. You know, I, I saw someone during worship pointing at the, um, I didn't see the cows. Yeah, it was, <laughs> some of us aren't that impressed with them anymore, Casey. <laughs> but, you know, you see the, the hawks and the birds of prey, right? See, I mean, what church has this painting up in their stained glass windows uh, you know, of just, wow, look at the, they're flying, everyone. They're flying. They can fly because of a creator, right? Oh, look at the clouds. Look at the, man, just use it all. Charles Spurgeon just wrote of Jesus. There's no greater pulpit that ever existed than the beautiful outdoor Sermon on the Mount location. What a pulpit this is because it helps us declare the glory of God goes on to say day under day day under day day unto day utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge there's abundant testimony look out at the stars tonight and you'll see knowledge about god there's no speech or language where their voice isn't heard there's universal testimony around the whole world i've stood upon the himalaya mountains friends and seen the long tong mountain range and I don't know if there's clear night sky anywhere in the world than on top of the Himalaya mountains. I mean, it is just exploding with beauty. And so the Tibetans are able to have the same testimony to them. Their line has gone out through the whole world and their words to the end of their... Man, I understand you guys that I'm running out of time and, and uh, just it's good for me because I've got next week's message already prepared page 7 out of 16 here, so I will be wrapping up soon. But how wonderful, though. Man, we, 
start out today the wrath of God, and and that's a good thing to talk about. It, it just it it kind of causes us to cringe a little bit. Like wrath of God, where's he going with this? And oh, and boy, it's actually that he's not just ticked off. He's like just and. Oh, he, he hates evil, and he will judge evil. Oh, man, I can get behind that. I can get behind that. And then as we keep reading, we say, man, since the beginning, he's been showing people how wonderful he is and how glorious he is, and, and there's nobody that hasn't had that witness. When we think of the vastness of space, the size and the shapes and the distance and the galaxies, and then there's this one little speck of dust called earth where life exists my pastor rob uh rob verdine in calvary chapel corvallis he's my father in the faith and a good friend his father-in-law worked for nasa as a uh, as a rocket scientist as a uh just helping with the space program he does an incredible uh sermon called earth the privileged planet. His father-in-law, if you remember when the, was it, I don't know if it was the Challenger that exploded back, it was early 2000s, so it wasn't the, the 80s one, it was the 2000s one, I can't remember off the top of my head. He was the one that determined that it was those foam deals that fell off of the spaceship that caused it to ignite upon re-entry. That was his discovery. Uh, and so here's a believer in Jesus. That it, It's smart people that believe in God, I'll just tell you that, Okay. In his sermon, he speaks of Earth being what's called the privileged planet. And I'll never forget him doing, he had great PowerPoint presentations, but he just says, if Earth was one mile away from the sun, farther than it is right now, we'd all freeze to death. And if Earth was one mile closer to the sun than it is today, we'd all burn up. And all the water would be sucked away and the earth would be a parched and barren land. This shows us there's design and where the earth exists within the universe. You look at our cells and our body functions and plants and photosynthesis and the awareness of right and wrong. Albert Einstein was not a Christian believer, and yet he looked at the wonders of the universe. He knew that there must be a God. When he was asked by an interviewer if he was an atheist, he replied, no, I'm not an atheist. And he explained his, his answer in this way. I'm not an atheist. The problem involved is too vast for our limited minds. We're in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows something, someone must have written these books. He does not know how. It does not understand the languages in which they're written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangements of the books and doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. We see the universe marvelously arranged and obeying certain laws, but only dimly understanding these laws. You might say that there are three C's from Romans chapter 1 here. Number one, creation. God gives us the testimony of creation to show that he exists and what he's like. One surgeon wrote, John, uh, John Stott and said, 
I am filled with the same awe and humility when I contemplate something of what goes into a single cell as when I contemplate the sky on a clear night. The coordination of the complex activities of a cell in a common purpose hits the scientific part as me as the best evidence for an ultimate purpose. So creation, he gave us testimony second seat of conscience. Creation, conscience, shows us that we're sinners in need of a savior. And then Christ would be the third C here as we wrap up. We need the testimony of Christ in order to believe in God's son and be saved. I like the way the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it. Our natural understanding and the works of creation and providence so clearly show God's goodness, wisdom, and power that human beings have no excuse for not believing in Him. However, these means alone cannot provide that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary for salvation. Okay, so what that's telling us is, yes, it's awesome. So people know there's a creator. All the world has that testimony just by looking at creation. And they have conscience that tells them that they've sinned against that creator. But they have no knowledge of how to be saved, how to be forgiven, and how to be reconciled against that, uh, to that creator that they've sinned against. The knowledge is not enough. They are without excuse. Leaves men, as J.B. Phillips says, without even a rag of excuse. And we'll have the worship team come on up. The wisdom of Solomon was believed to have been written by a Hellenistic Jew, probably in Alexandria, Egypt, around the first century. This Hellenistic Jew wrote this, For all people who are ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know the one who exists, nor did they recognize the artisan while paying heed to his works. But they suppose that either fire or wind or swift air or the circle of the stars or turbulent water or the luminaries of heaven were the gods that rule the world. If through delight in the beauty of these things people assume them to be gods, let them know how much better than these is their Lord. For the author of beauty created them. And if people were amazed at their power and working, let them perceive from them how much more powerful is the one who formed them. For from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. And so, just like in all of my favorite TV shows, I'm recognizing that the hour is up, but that the story is not and then those little words flash at the bottom of the screen and I'm like, no, I can't wait another week. <laughs> well, I hate to tell you guys, to be continued. The very next 
verse starts with the word because, which is connected to all that was just said in front of it. So we're going to just finish out today. You can just set your things aside and just move towards prayer and ending with a song. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The wrath of God burns hot against evil and against men who've been suppressing the truth in their heart. And maybe today you're just like, man, I know that I have suppressed the truth in my heart. And man, it's just even, your guilt is even more guilty when you read what Paul just wrote about. Man, since the day you were born, I've put all kinds of witnesses and testimonies out there in creation, in your conscience. And, and you know that you have sinned against this good and holy God. Man, it would just be horrible to end there. That'd be like, no hope. Go home. Enjoy your week. But the good news is it all comes from the beginning of this passage. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. So you might be wondering today, Rory, what hope do I have? I've got the wrath of God burning hot against me. I know I have sinned. He knows I have sinned. Makes it even worse that I know that there's a creator. I know that there's a judge. I know that what I'm not supposed to do and I've been sinning against him. I've had other gods before him. I've worshipped all kinds of weird things. I've been an idolater. I've just sinned against him. I haven't honored the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. And then, man, all those other six commandments about my fellow man. I've been adulterous. I've been lustful. I've committed adultery. I've murdered people. I've I've murdered people in my heart, Jesus says, which brings it down to the heart of the matter. Man, I've stolen things. I've coveted things. I've lied. I just, I am just guilty upon guilty upon guilty. And I just am out here in the beauty of all this. And I just know I am doomed and the wrath of God is upon me. But my friends, I tell you, I'm not ashamed to tell you today the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It has power to save you. And if you would just believe and trust in the Lord Jesus with all your heart, you'll be saved. I love the story of a missionary who was like in the jungle and he was translating a Bible into a native tongue and he couldn't figure out the word in that language for belief or trust. Couldn't figure out a word. What word do they have? And one day they were hacking their way through the jungle and he was with many natives and they were just machetes just going to town, going through the jungle and working so hard and sweating in the hot, humid jungle environment. And finally they took a break and one of the natives took his machete and went and laid down on a giant fallen log. He just laid out on the log and he just dropped his machete and just was taking a rest. And he asked, what's the word for what that guy's doing? And they gave him the word and he said, that's the word for belief and for trust. It's saying, I've got nothing left and all I can do is just fall down and rest in what God has done for me. I just ask you today, will you do that today? Will you do that? Will you honor God 
by resting in what he's done for you. He has the power to save you. He has the power to redeem you. And he wants to do that today. Let's pray. You can just repeat after me if that's you. Just repeat. And this isn't like a prayer that's like a bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. It's a magic prayer. It's nothing like that. I just want to help you maybe form a thought if you struggle with that. And just you can just pray the best you can. You can repeat out loud or in your heart. It doesn't matter. But just say, dear God, all that I've heard today has told me that I'm a guilty sinner and that you are not pleased with sin and you will judge sin. And I've heard today what I know to be true that you have revealed yourself to me in nature and creation and your goodness and putting food on my table and a roof over my head and good things and good friends and you've been good to me. It just makes it even worse that I've rebelled against you in the midst of your goodness. Lord, I know that I'm guilty. And a just judge must punish my guilt. But I've heard today from Pastor Rory that the good news is that you save the guilty. You have mercy on the guilty if they'll rest in you and throw themselves down and rest upon you. And so today I just lay aside my machete. I lay aside all my fighting. I lay aside all my laboring. And I just lay myself down and for, for your labor that you've done for me when you died on the cross for my sins. Thank you for substituting yourself for me, for sacrificing yourself for me. Thank you for your blood that was spilled to appease the wrath of God towards me. Forgive me of all that I've done. Give me a new heart and a new mind that I can live for you, that I can obey you, that I can trust in you, that I can honor you. Thank you for your grace toward me. And we all just close out in a prayer here today as well. As we, do you, why don't you stand with me and we'll just close out in this prayer. Lord, what a wonderful message. It's just to be continued, but as a lot of my colleagues say, that'll preach. That'll preach. Lord, your word so good and give us hearts to take what we've learned and heard today and to go out of this parking lot out into this world and to share it with our friends and our co-workers our teammates our family members lord just bring it to bear on their souls that they can know you as well pour out your spirit on us today that we can have the courage and the power to do so amen let's close with this song if you prayed that prayer with me today, uh, you know, it's what the Bible calls getting saved. Getting saved. I believe if you prayed that prayer out to the Lord that he would wash away your sins and forgive you and give you a new heart. I believe today you got saved. Such an exciting thing. That means you're born again. That's another phrase the Bible uses is born again. 
a new heart, a new start, a new mind. Such an exciting thing. The Bible says that when one sinner repents from their sin, the angels in heaven rejoice. There's like a party going on in heaven. That they're like, that guy down there, that girl, humbled themselves before God and asked for forgiveness of their sins. We never thought it would happen. Oh, this is incredible. Peter tells us that all of this is stuff angels want to look into. Because they've seen the whole story from the beginning. And they're like, I can't believe that God has had so much mercy on them. Those people, I would have squashed them a long time ago. And then when they see then there was that lady and that guy and that teenager in the park, you know. And they gave their life over to Jesus that day. And they're like, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. So awesome. I want to encourage you today. If you got saved today, come and talk to me. I want to meet you and I want to set you on that path of being a follower of Jesus, okay? I want to get you a Bible. I want to get you all lined out, meeting some friends and people that can be there with you and disciple you and just train you up in knowing the Lord and knowing the Bible, okay? Uh, so, so don't be a stranger. You come talk to me. And uh, another thing is that uh, as the weather gets a little warmer here, we're going to be having the baptismal outside here. And so if you're a believer in Jesus and you've never gotten baptized, and made that public proclamation that the old you is dead with Jesus, but just as Jesus rose from the dead, so too now you're a new person walking in newness of life. We're going to have the baptismal here probably next week. Uh, and so we'll, we'll just, you just come as you are. You can bring a swimsuit if you want or just get dunked in your clothes if you are. It's all good. Uh, and so be ready to be baptized if that's you. Uh, and then just one last little announcement here for some of you uh, that uh, were here getting here later today. You may have been like, man, I don't know any of these songs. I don't know the words to these songs. And on our church website, calvaryprimeville.com, there's a little banners that flick through. It's different pictures. One of those banners says worship lyrics for park service. And if you click on that, it'll take you to all the worship um, songs for that day. And you can just follow along on your device. I hate to tell you this, but for me, gone are the days of taking the extra time to like format all the long lyrics and trying to get them to fit on a paper and they never fit. And you're like, why won't you fit? And oh, now I got to do two-sided and front and back and multiple pages. I got to go down to the church and print them. Guys, help me out if you could. Just use your mobile device and your friend's mobile device and read it together. Go to our website, click on that. There's the lyrics for you. Or if you just want the HTTP colon blah, 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 it's just calvaryprimeville.com slash lyrics. Okay, so get that loaded up at home, have it all ready to go, and then you'll be able to sing the lyrics along with us as we worship the Lord. So that was just a little housekeeping sort of announcement. God bless you guys. Have a great week. I don't, the sun might have looked a little warm from where I was standing, but good job sticking it out. If you have a canopy, bring some canopies. We have another one that we're trying to find a couple parts to, but uh, God bless you guys. Have a great Sunday afternoon. We love you.